right, and we're off. So, man, I appreciate you taking the time to come down and do this. It's kind of an odd thing to folks like us. Hey, man, come over to the house and let's do a podcast. What the heck is a podcast? Do you even listen to podcasts? Yeah, I listen to a few. Not a whole lot. It, uh, it's uh, a luxury for me to, to have that kind of time to just sit back and chill and listen to something. But I'm glad to be here. It's a, a very nice, sunny Saturday morning in the south, a little crisp out, which is nice, instead of hot and sweaty. Yeah. So, yeah, all's good. Good times. It's finally getting to be that time of year where I enjoy being outside. August will settle down sooner or later. Um, I used to listen. I used to drive a lot for work. Uh, I worked an hour and a half, two hours away from work. And that's when I originally started listening to podcasts to fill that time in. I got tired of listening to music, hear the same song over and over and over again. And you might pick up one little nuance here and there, but it just, I, don't, I can't remember how I ran across them. But I started filling that time in with learning a little bit of something, something. And over the years, man, I've listened to so many people talk about so many things. It's, it's been an interesting experience. I'm glad to have podcasts available for folks. Yeah, I think podcasts, if you look at just the, the information available to us a, a, in a, as a whole, you know, when, when we were young, if you needed some information, you either went to the library or if you were fortunate enough, you had some type of encyclopedia set, but now you've got smartphones and podcasts and all those things that can just exponentially enhance your your knowledge base where in the past we were kind of limited without a whole lot of work going to search out those things now it kind of comes to us mm, you just have point. to avail yourself to it right right yeah i forgot about encyclopedias they used to be a pretty there were encyclopedia salesmen back in i bet kids don't even know about that these days people would go door to door selling encyclopedia britannica you remember that yeah we uh I think that was for the fancy people. We had the world book yes, encyclopedia set. But it was funny when uh, you were in school and teacher asked you to do a report on something. And I remember one time it was a report on the uh, Roman numeral system. And uh, we had like half a dozen reports that were exactly the same thing. Because they all came out of that <laughs> world book. Wow, never thought about that. We never, we never could afford those type of nice things. And growing, like, I grew up, of course, I was, my dad was in the Air Force, so we were always around military families, other military families, and they were all about the same pay grade that we were because military housing bunches all the, the grades together. So... We were just as broke as everybody else in the same block, so all my friends were all about the same level of brokenness. I mean, we weren't starving or anything like that, but just, you know, young young airmen's salary wasn't that that conducive to nice things like encyclopedias, but I was always into books when I was a kid, so when we did go to somebody like a church family's house that had some, mm -hmm. that's probably where you would find me, looking through those encyclopedias. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you bring up the uh, the airmen and the Air Force background. I don't know that we've ever really spoken at length about this, but I, I kind of came from the same background. My dad was a uh, 
tech sergeant before he retired, and we lived in base housing and had a garage that was butted up to someone else's garage and mm-hmm. you know, uh, limited pay grade. And uh, fortunately, his last assignment, we were in Florida, so he uh, would go out deep sea fishing a lot. So we ate a lot of fresh caught uh, fish and shrimp. And that supplemented the uh, the commissary bill quite a bit. Right, right. I was about to ask you if you liked oysters. I am not an oyster fan. My then I remembered you don't like seafood at all. <laughs> well, my my growing up, my mother loved oysters. Uh, my dad didn't eat them, but he would make them for her. And I remember one time she uh, convinced me to try a fried oyster. And I was like, hey, this is this is pretty good. Then I, I picked up one, and the batter came off, and it looked like a big swollen up plum. And I was just like that; it was it was done. I was out of there, never to never to return to that place. Yeah, they're they're not they're not the prettiest food. Those uh, conchs too, and uh, sea cucumbers. There's this fellow named Stephen Ranella. I've probably mentioned him to you before, but he's got some videos and one of on YouTube, I think it is, and uh, they. They caught some sea cucumbers and showed you how to how to clean them out and sort of flay them open and scrape the guts out of them and they battered them and fried them and I think I would try a sea cucumber I've never had sea cucumber I, I've tried a little bit of conch when I've been uh, in the Bahamas and Jamaica and such and it, it to me it's a little chewy okay not the greatest flavor it's not bad but the, it, nothing about it made me uh, want more. Okay, but okay. it was an interesting, interesting try. Yeah. Well, you didn't get salmonella from it. You survived it. No. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike a lot of people that go to those resorts down there nowadays, we came back alive and can uh, say we had a good time. Speaking of resorts, another, again, Stephen Ranella uh, had this guy on his show a while back. They lived on this Hawaiian island by himself. He stayed there 365 days a year, complete subsistence lifestyle. But he he run he ran a runs a restaurant that you have to make a reservation a couple days or a couple weeks ahead of time so that he can get the fish and stuff that he cooks on there. And that's just how he survived out there in the middle of an island all by himself. I couldn't imagine doing that. How did you go from the Air Force? Well, growing up in that environment, was there something that you saw there that it, that enticed you into getting into law, or did that happen somehow, so some other way? Well, there, <laughs> it could be a very long story, but uh, I graduated with a degree in finance, an undergraduate degree in finance, and um, at the time, the job market wasn't that great. I was able to find employment. It wasn't anything that I thought I would make a future off of. And just kind of made some decisions. I, I knew I wanted to call my own shots, be my own boss one day. So it was a matter of what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I considered some trades. Trades are great. I mean, uh, if you've ever paid a plumber or an electrician to come to your house, you know that those are good good uh, financial uh, jobs but uh, ultimately uh, decided to go to law school I had a friend I worked with he said he was going to apply and I said okay well I, I will apply as well 
and um, I went and he didn't. And here we are today. Did you ever work for anybody else? And the reason I asked, you said you wanted to call your own shots. Like, did you get experience working for somebody else that solidified that decision? Well, that that decision just came early on. Uh, I guess it may be a little bit of the entrepreneurial spirit, but I worked for a large corporate bank, and just um, what I saw around me, where they were solid careers, I felt like I needed more than that. I desired more than that. Just being told what to do every day when you come to work. Mm. So that's why I pursued something where I would be able to make those decisions myself. And I hear our local train in the background coming by. Yeah, it probably sounds like we're sitting out in the middle of a city, but we're actually in a garage. Watch your neighbors walk by. Watching the neighbors, listening to the birds and the trains. The birds really come through. Something about the, the frequency that they chirp in, mm -hmm. they really come through really well on these microphones. One of these days, I'm gonna, I've got this plug-in that goes on the end of this thing. It's got a different type of microphones that you can plug into it. Like, we've got it, we're using these auxiliary jacks right now, but it comes with these plug-ins. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But uh, now that we're in this type of year, take this thing out into the woods and go check out some bird sounds. And there's people who do that as a hobby, record bird noises. Well, that's, that's some nice free time. <laughs> you can look up bird noises on YouTube, and there's more than likely going to be somebody who's got at least a few seconds of that type of bird for you to listen to. I didn't know that until last year. For two weeks, right about this time of year, we I heard this really strange sounding, it almost sounded like a mix between a bird and maybe a fox or something like that. And so I was digging through owl sounds and uh, what are they called, nightingale sounds and magpie sounds, and I never could find what it was, but I've never heard it again. That's how I know about the bird sounds on the internet. Well, maybe it was a fox eating a bird. <laughs> Maybe it was. Maybe it was. Is it is it very difficult to get yourself established as like a first year? You pop out of law school, and what's that process like to get yourself established and start making some, some survivable amount of income? Well, the truth of it is it, it probably took a, se a solid seven years before I became comfortable and profitable to the extent where I could rely on that steady income. You know, law school teaches you a lot about various laws, taught us very little about how to go be a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I worked for a guy for just a short period of time, but other than that, it's it's been the me show. But with that, you've got to learn how to market yourself you've got to learn advertising you know in today's modern market you know, it's it's all seo and websites and uh, you know, facebook and instagram and youtube and TikTok. you know where when i first started it was can you afford to get a yellow page ad because those were super expensive right and you know uh, it's all about placement you know if you're advertising in a yellow page ad with attorneys and you know, you're paying you know, a 
$1,000 a quarter or something for something the size of a business card. And you've got firms out there that have several full pages ahead of you. Uh, folks probably aren't going to notice your little business card size ad that you're paying $1,000 a quarter for. Right. So it, it's, it was difficult. But, you know, during that period of time, things evolved. We, we became more Internet-based and got away from AOL and dial-up modems to broadband and, uh, you know, a lot of options like WordPress where you can go out there and create your own website if you choose to. You know, right. I did that for a while, and it was awful. I, I had a local guy look at it, and he said, uh, Hal, this is awful. And I said, well... It's the best I could do, and um, you know, we we managed to uh, decide to work together, and they they came in and did some new stuff for me, and I've just kind of stuck with them over the years, and it's it's made a big difference. How do you know to do? You talk to new clients and ask them how they found you to ascertain whether or not your website's doing any good, or your Instagram ads are doing any good. I do. Uh, I, I do track that information, and um, you know, typically I will run some ads through Facebook and Instagram, which are it, it's you know, I'm not necessarily endorsing those folks, but it, it's a great resource for small business owners because you can set ad amounts. What do you want to spend a per day or per campaign? You can put some demographics in there about the type of people you're looking for. You can uh, put a big circle on a map and say, you know, I, I want to start in this town and I want to reach out 20 miles in any direction. And that's where it's going to focus uh, your ads upon people that are using those services. So, you know, for a, an attorney working in a local market like me or just any small business owner in a local market, you, know, you can do that probably fairly effectively. Bring in some people. You know, the, the content will oftentimes compel them to call or reach out, email, whatever it may be. But, you know, that in itself is not a sale. You still have to close it, you know, regardless of you offering a service or some type of product. Right. You know, that that just kind of gets the door open. But that that's a necessary evil towards uh, making your sale. What about from the other side? Say I'm in need of an attorney's services, is there a way to sort of get a feel for the reliability of a law firm looking at their content or looking at the ads that they that they have out there? Well, you know, you have to be careful with the ad market in terms of being a consumer because there are so many ways to kind of twist the data, make things appear better than they are. You can go online. There's a number of services uh, where you can purchase reviews. You can purchase backlinks, things like that that aren't legitimate that can uh, affect how your website performs in an SEO manner, which would uh, enhance your ranking SEO-wise, but you know, uh, there's no guarantee that the services behind the ranking that you would get, say, a Google search. Um, one thing I found that's very effective when we're dealing with clients 
and we finish our representation of them, I always encourage them to leave us a, a Google review. Okay. You know, Google's, Google's absolutely the big player in the market. But you can go out there and uh, they can talk about their experience. They can put in as much information as they want. You know, a lot of them choose not to, and I, I encourage a lot of them not to because it is somewhat attorney-client privilege. They don't need to go out there and, you know, if they've got a user account that's John Doe and everybody knows John, you know, he doesn't necessarily want to go out there and say, hey, this guy did a great work with my DUI. Right, right. You know, feel free to call him. Right. But we do encourage all our clients when we're wrapping up to give us, you know, positive Google reviews if they feel like they can. And I get a lot of calls from folks going, hey, I, I found you. I read these reviews. I, I like what people are saying. You know, you know it, it sounds like you're more than competent. It sounds like, you know, you're compassionate. So we want, we want to come see you. That, that's the beginning of it. You, you still have to kind of sell yourself once they sit down across from you or call you on the phone, but that type of, uh, of mar marketing through that um, vehicle is very helpful. And it also helps the consumer. You know, you've got real life people making these comments and you do, you do have to take a little bit of time and read through it because like I said earlier, there are ways to go out there and have uh, these companies and uh, most of them are overseas but for a fee they'll come in and they'll give you reviews they'll do a number of things that makes it look like you're very active you're very busy you're very popular and it's just things you can buy for dollars okay and it's not necessarily uh, legitimate reviews you know from what i've been told google does their best to try to weed through all that but certainly a, a fair amount of that does squeeze through um but you know other than what Google tells you and reviews tell you, word of mouth. You know, if you've got a friend that has gone through a similar thing and he's shared it with you, um, ask him how his experience was. You know, if he if he tells you I didn't I didn't didn't enjoy my experience, I don't think they did a good job, whatever that may be. Uh, that that's a very compelling reason to call somebody else and talk to them about what's going on with you. Let's say that. <clears throat> I'll just use DUI because it probably is it's pretty popular charge in a college town like this. Uh, I, I just got out of jail yesterday from a DUI and I need an attorney and I just happen to get a hold of you. What, what can somebody reasonably expect the next few months to look like in terms of maybe financial investment or are you allowed to drive typically? What do you do if you have a job? How do you get back and forth to school? Like what happens after after a DUI? Well, let's, if we can, let's just start with a fictitious stop. All right. So you're, you're stopped and the, the uh, cops believe you may be driving under the influence. You know, they've got to have probable cause to stop you. Some of the things I typically see is maybe you have run off the road or maybe uh, their, their best one is uh, a lane change violation. You switched lanes without a blinker. Okay. And they saw you do it. Things like that are speeding. Um, they're going to pull you over. Oftentimes, if you have been out and about, you are there's going to be a smell of alcohol in your car just through your breath mm. inside that closed vehicle. Based upon that, they're going to ask you, where have you been? 
how many drinks you've had, and they're going to ask you to step out of the car. I advise my people answer those questions uh, with as little information as possible. You know, if they ask you how many drinks you've had, I would suggest I don't know. Some of them go just just a few. Nope. Um, but you know, a lot of times uh, we see through body camera video requests from the officers that those stories change. They evolve. You know, intoxicated people don't make the best decisions. A lot of them uh, think, "Hey, I, I, I'm doing good with this. I'm answering these questions. I'm avoiding the." Uh, the real issue here, but they're really not doing well because they're intoxicated. Right. Um, so they, they'll have you do a field sobriety testing and they, they'll look at your eyes, how your eyes react when they're going across a plane. They'll have you follow a pin or something. And typically, if you've been intoxicated or been drinking a little bit, you're going to have a little bit of jitter in your eyes. Um they may have you do a walk down a straight line and turn around and come back. And everyone thinks it's about balance. Yeah, the balance part's important, but they give you very specific instructions. They'll say, I want you to take nine heel-to-toe steps. Then at the end of those nine, I want you to do this little shuffle. And they're supposed to um, demonstrate everything for you. So okay. they want you to do this little shuffle. So you're going to turn 180 and you're going to come back another nine to heel, you know, nine steps of toe-to-heel. And you watch these videos, and you know, folks are taking 12 and they're got their arms out like they're flying, and their arms are supposed to be by their side. And um, you know, that they'll, they'll get to the, the end of that first nine and they'll come back and they don't turn like it was demonstrated, and then they'll come back, they'll come back like five steps, and the officer will go, Are you done? Ah, okay. And uh, yeah, I'm done, I'm done, and you know, it, it's just. Uh, it's not necessarily, like I said, the balancing. It's it's the ability to follow instructions. So uh, these field sobriety tests aren't really meant for people to pass. I mean, it, it's just a hoop. It's it's a little bit more of a net. But they're going to book you. They're going to cuff you up. They're going to take you in. Next thing they're going to do is they're going to talk to you about the uh, BAC, the Blood alcohol, blood alcohol content. And they're going to have you probably breathe into a Draeger. Uh, a lot of people will uh, do that. A lot of people will say, I'm not doing that. Not doing that is helpful to your lawyer because then we don't have a level. But where they get you, especially in this college town, is they'll go, well, if you're not going to breathe into this, we're going to have to hold you for 24 hours because we feel you're intoxicated, but we don't know the level and we can't safely let you out the door. Okay. Until we're confident that you can function properly. So upon hearing 24 hours, a lot of folks will go, hey, hey I'll do that. Let's, let's fire this thing up. Let's, let's go. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll blow a big number. Uh, here in our state, anything over a .08 is uh, legally intoxicated. Uh, I, I've, I've had a blow .27. You know, more than three and a half times the legal limit. Um, it, it's amazing what people can do to themselves and still function fairly well. Yeah, yeah. But after that, you know, they'll eventually get let out. Say they give us a call. We're going to invite them in. We're going to tell them what we can do for them. We will talk uh, about the financing of it and uh, 
We'll do a, di a discovery request. If I could stop you right there for just a second. Is it true that you have to, you're legally required to be allowed to take a phone call if you're incarcerated or put in a drunk tank or whatever? Well, those are two different things. A drunk tank and incarcerated, you're, you're allowed a phone call after you're booked and arrested. Um, a lot of people will come in and they'll, they'll be told about the, uh, given the, the, the breath alcohol analysis, and they'll say, well, I want to speak to my lawyer. Well, in our state, you're not entitled to one at that time. Okay. Because you're not in, you're not, you're kind of in quasi-custody. You can't leave, but you're not under arrest yet. You're just detained. Is that the you, word you're, like? you're detained. Okay. Um, but so back to they, they come see me. We're going to do a discovery request. And with that, we're going to get a copy of any police reports that are prepared as a result of your interaction with the local authorities. We also get a lot of body camera video. The locals are good about shooting body camera video. There's, there's usually three or four uh, police officers that will come to the scene of a DUI. They'll, assist, they'll all kind of just be at different angles. So, um, Is that why they do that, that you see one person pulled over and four cars around? I don't necessarily know that's why they do it. I think it's it's uh, something we get for being in a, a smaller-sized town. There's enough officers on uh, on the shift, and you know maybe it has to do with the time of day as well. But... Um, it, it allows for them to help each other out, and I think that's kind of what they're doing more than anything. I see. Okay. Um, but once we get that video back, we'll watch it with our clients. And, you know, I've had so many of them look at me and say, I was solid. I was good. I don't know why I was arrested. And we look at this video, and you're drooling on yourself. You <laughs> peed yourself. Oh, no. And, you, you know, you don't know where you are. You don't know your name. Oof. Um, Based upon that, we'll make some decisions. Now, penalty-wise, oftentimes in in our town, uh, depending on your age, if you're if you're under 21, we can get youthful offender treatment, which you'll have to jump through a bunch of hoops. But ultimately, your your case will be sealed. So, insurance-wise, you're still going to take a hit, but in the future, uh, allegedly, a background check wouldn't see it. Okay. Um, then there's another option we can do called pretrial diversion. Again, a lot of jump hoops to jump through. You'd have to have an alcohol assessment. The authorities want to know that when you're done with them, if you've had any problems, they're going to try to help you to correct those things. Really? Yeah. Um, some community service. Uh, meet with a parole officer maybe on a monthly basis. And it's not it's not like what you see on TV. They don't come in and go, well, where have you looked for work this week? You know, it's just how are you doing? You know, depending on your assessment, you may have to do some AA classes or celebrate recovery or something like that. They just truly want you to be the best you can be when, when you're on the back end of this. Okay. And, um, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, when people come to see me, especially these college kids, they probably get more than they bargained for and – I think for the most part, most of them appreciate it. Some of them may not. I, I, I don't know about you, Grady, but when I was growing up, I was of the opinion that my parents didn't know squad. Yeah. And especially in those college years, I'm like, are you kidding? What do you know about this? Right. So, you know, I, I will tell these parents, because a lot of times I'm dealing with parents because their children maybe are, are minors, and I'll tell them, I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them a, 
few extra thoughts other than just the legal business. And I encourage them to do well, you know, make better decisions. You know, you're, you're going to college. Why, why do you want to make a decision like this that's going to get you possibly a DUI conviction? Right. Because a few years from now when you graduate, you know what? That guy next to you that's trying to get that same job as you, he may not have a DUI conviction. Right. That's good advice. You don't need to compete against folks with that anchor hanging off of you. Right. So we encourage them to make those better decisions. The good news is for, for young people like that, uh, maybe a first offense, there's a lot we can do to get them out of trouble. Of course, there's going to be some penalty, some money. Uh, like in our city, if you do uh, a, one of these programs I've mentioned, you generally have to have ignition interlock installed on your vehicle. That's something that's hardwired into your dash. You've got to breathe into to make your car start. And if you're driving your car for an extended period of time, it will it will cue you to give another breath. What? So you can't just start your car and run into the Circle K and grab a white claw. You've you know they're going to keep up with you while you're operating that vehicle. Wow. Um, but again, you know it, it's it's for our safety. It's for the public safety. It's for their safety. Um, right. Right. But at the end of all that, the unfortunate thing when we're talking about college kids is a background check is going to show DUI arrest, right? Dismissed. Okay. If we were able to get it dismissed, but so that's still that cloud. You know that that's like that that guy on Charlie Brown, you know, Pigpen, where that that cloud followed him wherever he went. That cloud of dust. Okay. But there's a vehicle called an expungement that we can do after the fact if you've truly gotten your. Uh, case dismissed we can file this petition and ultimately uh, it'd be our plan to get the local circuit court judge to order an expungement and what that would entail is him issuing an order telling everybody that's had any interaction with you as a result of this case such as maybe the police the sheriff's department because they book people and jail people up the sheriff's department you know, the municipal court, all those people, the judge would issue them an order saying, wipe your records clean of this event. Once that's done, a background check would show nothing about okay. this. So that's a great way, you know, to help the person that has, has truly messed up, is repentant, doesn't want to go back, you know, doesn't want to repeat those type of bad mistakes and don't want to uh, you know, affect their future. In order to get to the point where you can be considered for expungement, you still would have had to go through all those steps that you mentioned a little while ago, possibly AA, vehicle interlock. Correct. Okay. And expungement is, is actually a petition after your criminal case is over. Okay. It's not a part of that criminal case. Okay. It's a separate action altogether. So the things I, I mentioned earlier, those are just things that you have to do to resolve that criminal case. And in most points, you know, what I was talking about, they would, those things would uh, result in your case being dismissed if you completed those things. Okay. Is a DUI considered a criminal charge? Well, if you, if you look on it on the system we use, it's, it's listed as a traffic charge. Ultimately, if you get successive DUIs, it, it can escalate up to where it's a felony. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it is a criminal charge, the first one. But um, you know, there there's jail time that is ordered, but 
on a first offense, most every judge out there will uh, suspend that jail time. So if you do what you're supposed to do and stay out of trouble, you'll, you'll never serve a day other than that long night where you sat there waiting your 24 hours or whatever it is to, to run. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it is criminal, and it, it definitely can escalate as you get subsequent DUIs, and that's really problematic for a lot of functioning alcoholics that we have out there. I don't understand what that, does, is that somebody who can be drunk all the time and still work and still drive straight and still go to the store? Yes. Okay. It is. They, they can consume an amount of alcohol that the rest of us uh, would probably go to sleep after and just go throughout their day working, driving, all those things, but they've got an elevated, you know, blood alcohol level, but they, they've just become accustomed to it, and they can function just about as good as us with just a slight amount of impairment. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I've never heard a DUI being portrayed as a criminal charge. Maybe if more folks knew that, it would be less of a... Uh, a prevalent issue that it's that scared me ever since I was young of course my dad always told me too about the time I got to 14 or so he said if you ever find yourself in jail don't call me because I'll come down there and tell him to put you under the jail it's like all right that kept me out of most trouble <laughs> yeah I understand I, you know going back to these Air Force days that we both experienced I remember at one point, uh, my dad had retired, but I became of driving age, and maybe I was on base and going a little fast, and he got a call about it, and he made it clear that if that happened again, that uh, he'd be giving me a ride over to the base, and uh, I would be walking home from there. Right. And, yeah, it's probably a good 10 miles or so. That was just his way of saying, this is one and done. You're, you're, I'm not getting this call again. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I lived, I lived, well, I grew up with a healthy respect for, for the law and, and police. I think because dad just, I was terrified. And I don't know if this was true or not. It's something he always told me. He said that everything that you do when you're out there on base is going to reflect on me, which could then affect the family if I get in trouble for something that you've done. Like I said, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but I took it as gospel and and acted accordingly. $10,000 is the number that I, the uninitiated, have heard that it costs once you go to jail for a DUI until that thing gets complete. Is that accurate these days or is it more? I think it could be fairly accurate. I, I, I think a lot of that cost that they come up with is... Uh, the overall increases in your insurance, like over a period of time. You know, hiring a DUI lawyer, a skilled DUI lawyer is definitely not cheap. Um, you know, depending on, I can look at a case and go, we're going this route. I can make that decision pretty quick. Of course, I'm just, I, I always refer to myself as the navigator. I'm going to give you solid legal advice, but ultimately you're driving the bus. You've got to make these decisions. Right. But I'm going to give you solid legal advice telling you what I think you need to do. If you want to do something else, we'll do it. Um, but those those decisions affect um, what we would charge. 
you know, if we know up front, say this is DUI number three, you've got big problems, maybe you wrecked, maybe you hit somebody, maybe somebody's hurt, and mm. we're going to have to try your case. Mm. You know, we're going to quote you a number that's very different from what the first-time offender from college comes in and, and gets quoted because okay. we know we're going down a different trail different path towards a resolution of those two cases i see but you know if you think about court costs you know here in our city probably a hair under two thousand dollars for court costs and fines and interlock um attorney's fees yeah so i i think the big number when you when you hear those commercials about ten thousand dollars you know i lost my car and i lost my girlfriend because i lost my car right relates to increases in insurance costs over the life of your driving yeah eventually it'll it'll settle down and and calm down but i imagine those first few years after a dui arrest those insurance costs go up dramatically i would imagine so once you get that dui on your record how long does that stick around does it ever fall off well it Falling off is a, a, a kind of a weird term. What we what we look at is priors. So in Alabama, if you've got a prior DUI, it, it needs to sit out there for 10 years before it's not counted as a prior. Okay. So if you've had one seven years ago and you think, hey, I've been doing great. I had one seven years ago. Well, that, you're going to be charged on this next one. It's going to be number two. So the penalties, everything increases, the dollar amount, the jail time. Sometimes on number two, jail time's not suspended. But, okay. yeah, it's, t it's a 10-year look back, and it's not just here. If you had one in Georgia um, inside of 10 years and you get one here, they're going to treat it as a second. And everything just exponentially gets more expensive and the penalties grow. Okay. I'm, I'm picking up something that I've not thought about before. It's it – almost kind of want to get away from DUIs because it's a really icky subject, but we've been talking about that. It sounds like the law is constructed in such a fashion that the court can be lenient on a first-time offender, but they've got the legal authority and power to increasingly punish you as you repeat the same offense or they can pop, you do something else and you've got that prior sitting there from like, you know, two months ago and get caught with some drugs or something like that. They can mix the two together and punish you more harshly or they can be lenient. They've got that that decision available to them. And the reason I'm, I'm asking about that is because there's a sense in this country that some folks are unfairly treated when it comes to having the book thrown at them. I'm getting in between what you're saying that maybe so, but maybe they've got a lot of prior history that caused the book to get thrown at them. You see where I'm going with that? I do. You know, from my standpoint, and that's one reason we look at this body camera video, before we were able to get this, this video, before it came prevalent that they were keeping up with this, I'd always ask clients, well, how'd you do? You know, and usually we're talking about field sobriety and stuff like that. And then I'll lean in a little closer and I'll look at them. I said, were you respectful? How do you talk to the officers? Interesting. Okay. Uh, because they have input 
in a lot of things, but they're also going to write this in a report. And, you know, if you've got someone that comes in, they got in trouble, that got a DUI, did everything they're supposed to do, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, to everybody, was compliant, wasn't a jerk, chances of their outcome being better than the person that was a jerk, that cussed the cops, that spit on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had folks urinate in their cars. Oh, goodness. You know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, your attitude, your behavior directly uh, helps or controls a lot of the outcome you're going to look at. Okay. I mean, even if you've been bad, there are some judges that maybe will admonish you in court. And, you know, our local guy, he's like, yeah, these folks right here are working hard for us. They're working hard for you. You need to be more respectful of them. Right. And that may be the end of it, but, you know, if it's a repeated behavior and showing disrespect to the officers or the court, uh, a lot of times the uh, sentencing and fines and court costs that are within the discretion of the judge will fluctuate. Okay. I mean, if he sees that, that you've been a good good person for the most part that just made a mistake you're you're going to be looking at minimal things but if you're on the far end of it and you know you were not helpful you were ugly you were disrespectful you you know treated the officers bad you know it's bad experience maybe you come to court that day and you're not respectful maybe you're not dressed properly you know it's not church but you know it's still a place of uh, respect right and if you just show up and, you know, you're flippant and you're just not the, the best person coming across to the judge, he has the jurisdiction and uh, the ability to uh, give you a little bit more sentence than he would someone else. Interesting. So you want to present yourself as professionally as, as within your financial ability to do so oh sure you don't have to go buy a suit but don't come in there with ratty shorts and flip-flops on you're absolutely right now you know girls will come in with skirts that that barely cover things and you know guys will come in with shorts like you said and flip-flops i I had a guy come in one time with a football jersey on and Mm. uh it was one of my my judges that i really liked and he looked down over the bench and he uh, said uh what position do you play? <laughs> and this this guy got this big smile on his face. He goes, "Oh, oh judge, I, I I don't I don't play football." And the judge t- smile event yeah immediately was gone. At which point he said to this man, "He says, why are you wearing a football jersey to my courtroom?" Right. Yeah, you don't have to wear a suit. I had a guy recently with a DUI, and uh, I said, "Just dress nice." And we show up for court, and he's got a $600 heart shafter and Mark's uh, sport coat on. I, I opened it up because it was very good looking. I opened it up and saw the tag, and Hart's just a very high-end uh, men's suit manufacturer. Okay. And uh, this this guy builds docks at the lake. Okay. And he's, he's not a person of great means or anything, but he felt like he needed to look good. I said, you do. You look fabulous. Right. Take that back if you can. Right. Yeah. Because a, a $79 sport coat in a navy color would have been fabulous. But, I mean, the truth is, yeah, wear a polo shirt, 
a no-name polo shirt and tuck it in your pants. That's all you got to do. But, you know, it's all about appearance. Right, right. This makes me think about, yeah, it's probably back to, back to the military. You, you respect the uniform, maybe not necessarily the person in it. People in the, the military have to always salute somebody of a higher rank. If they walk past them on a sidewalk or back and forth on a building. There's all these intricate rules to it that I don't understand. But that's always stuck with me. Respect the uniform and not necessarily the person. And I'm getting that we need to treat police and court officials and stuff like that the same way. I mean, these are old institutions that have been around for, what, 150 years or so in this country, maybe longer. And it's a good idea to they, – they might not necessarily treat you with the respect you feel like you deserve, but that uniform they're wearing means a lot more to society than the person inside it necessarily may. And the same thing with a judge. He might be a horrible judge, but that cord and that ancient wood that they build those things in and those old creaky chairs have been around a lot longer than that guy will. I wanted to ask you, from an attorney's perspective, at each phase in somebody's life, I mean, imagine you start getting to middle age and start collecting a few assets and start thinking about, you know, at some point I might croak and what am I going to do with all this stuff? But before that, are there their legal vehicle or I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to use the right word here. Like what sort of documents, legal documents should a person have in college? Maybe when they get out of college and start their first job, is there anything I should as a, go see an attorney for when I'm in my twenties and I'm finally making twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year versus going to see one towards the end of my life to get all my assets together and get them all on a will? Are there other things that I should be having in my possession? Well, I, I think if you're a, a single man that's twenty five years old that's out there just being a professional and going through life haven't married yet, don't have kids yet. I think you can get by with very little. You know, I would, it's really not a legal thing, but I'd suggest some type of minimal life insurance policy while you're a young person. It costs next to nothing. Okay. In case something happens to you, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're, you still have your parents or what, but in case something happens to you, there's, there's money on hand to take care of your, your, your final requirements, your, your burial and things like that. So that's like a very minimal policy. But, you know, a lot of folks at that age group are marrying and having kids. And, you know, once that happens, you definitely need to get into the will planning. Nobody wakes up today and says, I may die today. But the truth is you may. Right. And, you know, for young married couples with kids, uh, you know, the death of any parent or your spouse is, of course, tragic, but you know, a will definitely helps. It uh, carries out your last wishes, tells people what you want to do. And again, at that age, you've not acquired that many assets. So, yeah, it, there's probably not a lot involved in it. But let me give you another, another scenario. Say you've got a spouse. You've got a child. A couple years old. You all decide to go on a trip to the Bahamas and leave the child with with grandma and grandpa mm -hmm. and your plane goes down right you're right. gone what happens to this child goes to the state doesn't it no not necessarily the state it's some family but you know if you've if you think you've seen petty people that fight within a family let someone die 
and everything gets petty real quick. Okay. I want this. I want that. I want the kid. No, you're too old. You know, whatever. So there, there's ways to kind of combat what could happen in the future. You won't be here to, to ever see it. But it's quite traumatic for those that are left behind. Sure. So, you know, taking the time to set up a will. You know, if you've got kids, you can set up a will that addresses trust issues. Uh, you know, not as in, uh, do I trust you? But, you know, <laughs> if you've got money, you know, maybe through an insurance policy, bank accounts, whatever, you can set up a trust for this minor child and go ahead and elect a trustee that's going to take care of that money and dole it out to the child as needed. You know, maybe... Maybe a car one day, college expenses if they choose to go to college, you know, those type things. It just takes a little bit of planning, but it's just a very sound thing for, like, a young married couple to do. Now, you know, older couple, yeah, you definitely need wills in place. You know, typically wills give everything to the spouse, vice versa. But okay. if that spouse is predeceased me, then it kind of breaks it down, maybe goes into your kids nephews nieces whatever maybe you don't have kids but again it's your final wishes if you die without that it, it, it's a mess it, your estate can be probated but it's it's costly it's expensive a lot of court time and again like i said earlier you know pettiness comes with death people start fighting over really stupid things you know whether it's a a doll collection or some rare coins or something or maybe not even something rare that maybe it's just something that was important to you that that your your uh, heirs realized was important to you so hey they want it okay um you know some goodwill work can take care of those things and uh, head off a lot of those problems before they occur okay what i'm hearing then is about the time you get married you should at least get some sort of minimal life insurance. And I think the figure's about, what is it, six to $8,000 to take care of funeral expenses these days? I think that that's, that's probably about right. So you'd want to get yourself a life insurance policy that would cover that amount, at least, uh, so that your spouse doesn't have to go through the loss of you and having to go find $8,000 to bury you. <laughs> I would imagine that's probably not a lot of fun. And then once you get to the you have a child you need to think into the future and consider who who you would want to have custody of that child if something happened to you and your spouse yes at that's the least correct. yeah and i think when you're looking at that that life insurance amount and i'm i'm definitely not a, a life insurance agent but you can get online and price that stuff fairly easily nowadays i mean if you're in your your mid 20s and you're you're relatively healthy i mean you could probably get a hundred thousand dollar policy for fifteen twenty dollars a month something negligible like that it's not that bad no it's not, it, it's not. you know no nobody expects to check out but the truth is you know you never know what your last day is going to be if you've got a, a spouse out there you know they're going to need to continue on without you and not having to struggle to replace your income right would mean a lot towards them uh, coping with your loss. Right, right. And a lot of jobs, I can't think of any job I've ever had that was 
at the point where uh, you offer 401k and, and health benefits and stuff like that didn't just about give you a free life insurance policy. I, I think the least amount I've ever seen was like $60,000. And then you could add on if you wanted to on top of that mm-hmm. up to a certain amount. And then after a certain amount, you had to go get a health screening, which used to be a lot more intrusive than it is now. I don't even know if they're, I don't even know if they drug test anymore, Hal. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I've had any of that done. But I, you know, I think the last policy I, I purchased that's still in place, uh, they came to my house, brought a scale, hopped on the scale. They drew some blood. I don't know what all they did with that. But, wow. Um, yeah, and I guess it depends on what you're asking for, too, in terms of coverage. Right. As those amounts go up, they, they there's a little more risk on their part. So they got to make sure uh, what they're dealing with. So right. I get that. But, yeah. you know, it, it's still a very worthy uh, investment for your family. You, you you won't directly benefit from it, but but they definitely will. Right. And it does give you a, a sense, a peace of mind. At least it does me knowing that if something did happen to me that I've, I've done my due diligence to make sure that they get some sort of compensation right. for my loss. Yeah, and you know, as you as you get older, like we've discussed, you know, if if you're a fifty something and you, you check out, well, what's the monthly income that they're gonna your spouse is gonna have to replace with right. you being gone? And you've already you've got a mortgage more than likely, you've got more than one car payment, you've probably got kids in college. Like just because you're not there and you take your just because the yeah, you're not there to worry about it, but the income that all that was built on is gone. And that's putting everybody you're left with in a, in a, in a bad situation. I mean, imagine your kid's in the fourth year of, of college, <laughs> got two semesters left, and all of a sudden dad isn't there to pay for it anymore. Yeah. Plus mom's got bills, mom's got mortgages and groceries, and it's, yeah, it's just something – that's part of the due diligence of being a responsible adult. Um, one last question. What do you, what services do you offer to folks who may need an attorney? Well, we live in a small town, Grady. So I do for the most part, what we call threshold lawyering. People come in and I've done this for nearly 22 years. Most of your issues I can help you with. Okay. So, I mean, criminal, civil, estate planning, uh, you know, probate after, after someone has passed, you know, most, most of those things we do. Um, but the key is, is because I've done this for 22 years, I've built quite a network up that if it's something I don't do, mm-hmm. I can get you to somebody that I call a friend okay. that, that's great at what they do. So it helps okay. when you have a relationship with me and you've got some other issue. You don't have to go out and do like we talked about earlier, all the Google searches and reading the reviews and everything. If, if you trust me as your lawyer for other things and you come in and you need something that I don't do and I'm like, this is who you need to call. She's awesome. Interesting. You should feel good about that recommendation. Of course, you know, you're ultimately going to make that decision, but... You know, you're going to feel good when you go see that person because I have vetted them. They are a, a colleague that I trust. 
if I had that type issue, that's where I would go. Okay. So that's the, that's the kind of person I'm going to send you to if I don't do that type work. Interesting. Never thought about the network that lawyers need to have. So I guess there is sort of a specialization amongst attorneys. and There is. You know, some things you get into are, are uh, pretty much a specialty. Um, there's not a lot of them, but they are out there. Okay. And some things you really shouldn't dabble with. You shouldn't do certain things, you know, once every couple of years. You know, you don't maintain the specialty. Uh, statutes change. you got to be able ah. to stay on top of, of current laws and legislation. So, you know, in situations like that, I, I send you to somebody that that's, that's all they do. So they're, at the, they're at the peak of their game right there. Okay. You wouldn't go to a linebacker to throw a, to throw a football. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't be the guy I asked to throw (laughs) that football. All right. Well, Hala, you want to tell us where your Instagram, Facebook, phone number, how folks get in touch with you? Well, uh, we've not mentioned this, but we are located in Auburn, Alabama. And uh, I'm on 225 North Gay Street. It's in a historic little Sprayberry house. It's one of the few... Uh, old houses remaining in the city of Auburn. It's two-story Victorian next door to the Circle K across from the Standard Apartments. One of those great apartment buildings they built for the college kids that has a zero-entry pool on the roof. Uh, Sweet. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I'm across the street from there. Uh, we, we do have a Facebook page. You would probably find it under uh, Walker Law Firm. Uh, we've got Instagram. We'd be glad to help you with whatever needs you've got. Um, typically, you can reach out to us uh, either through the phone at 334-329-7325 or through an email at hal at halwalkerlaw.com. So Beautiful. If we can help you, feel free to reach out to us. Hal, I appreciate you. Thanks for your time coming over in the Garage Podcast Studio this morning. It was great, Grady. <laughs> I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks, Al.